Well, hello and welcome to the Adoption and Fostering Podcast on the NF Network with me, Al Coates, and him... Ebenezer Scrooge. Oh, 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 oh. oh shut up. <laughs> no, I am. I, honestly, I've changed my Twitter handle to be Ebenezer Scrooge already, yeah. and it's still November. Anyway, I'm Scott well, Cassin Rennie, but yeah. Sc- well, Scott, AK 42, Ebenezer Scrooge. 42 <laughs> days you were away. 42 days. Honestly. Honestly. No one Let's knows ha- it better than I do, believe me, because coming back into it now. Oh, anyway, I'll so, let you continue. Well, I'd love you to share with our dear listener, um, what were you? What do we mean by 42, Scott? Where, where the <laughs> hell have you been? Well, I like to think of it, you'll get this because you're a man of faith and you know people who are in the faith community. I like to call it a little sabbatical. That's why I had a little sabbatical. I thought you were going to say pilgrimage. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, it could be. <laughs> You've gone and found yourself. The Chardonnay or, uh, um, oh, well, uh, long story short, I had a holiday booked with some girlfriends at the beginning of October. And then, yeah, I know, 4th of October, I, I left Ireland um, and went on a holiday to Turkey with my girlfriends for a week. And that was lovely. And mm-hmm. on the day I came back, Sorry, on the morning I came back, actually, we got the news that um, a new edition had arrived at 4.12 in the morning. Yes, so little April arrived at 4.12 in the morning, um, that morning that I came back. So that was, which was fantastic, I have to be honest. I was planning on staying in the UK between coming back from Turkey and Mm -hmm. then going on the next break Mm -hmm. anyway. However, it just made it all the better because we were really worried that the baby was going to be late and we wouldn't be here and blah, 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 blah. So she, she decided to come the day before my birthday. Bit disappointing. I mean, I'm not going to hold it against her. You know, she's only six mm. weeks old. Mm. But, you know, I was hoping for the 13th. But anyway, there you go. Um, so, yeah, so then I spent 12 days kind of at my friend's and then going back and forward between. And were you um, helping? Were you sort of, were you yeah, actually I was like, helping. helping with the nappies well, and... Yes, I changed nappies. I did. Oh, um, you're a very modern man, and, aren't you? Oh, I tell you, I tell you. Um, I, I'm proper. I want. I was going to use the word granddad. There, I hear that word. <laughs> proper granddad, getting right into it. Is grandma? Um, are you proper grandmaring? Is that, I don't no, know. No, I'm not the... grandma. Thank you. Well, I. So we're calling ourselves pops and grumps. So I'm pops. He's grumps. Because I see how kid. that works. Yeah. <laughs> um, but actually, when you know, I well, I don't know about you when you had when you're. Um, daughters had their kids but it is a completely different feeling absolutely like nothing else I mean well clearly you're in touch with that side of yourself but um, it is absolutely different it's, it's, it's a whole new it opens I'm, your world and you know we we never had babies safe to uh, say true true having but having met in, met April at 10 hours old um, yeah it's just mind-blowing stuff for us absolutely mind-blowing there's a there was a study, wasn't there? Um, I'm not sure who did it. Was it the university? Well, no, it was University of East Anglia did a study on mm. adoptive grandparents, and I've not has that been out? Not, well, I think it was because didn't we briefly discuss it? But before we were grandparents, oh, or before awkward, our grandparents, I don't know. awkward. Yeah, on, I know, a little bit. People are seeing I'm sure behind us. Julie, some... Julie, 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 yeah. Elliot. Julie, yeah. Not sure that's something, mm. but anyway, um, anyway. Maybe we I'm should revisit that and have a look at it. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, so so then there was 12 days of that. And then um, we 
<laughs> so, um, I, as you know, my husband, he's a great one for saying long weekends here, there and everywhere. And a long weekend is normally a fortnight. Um, well, anyway, <laughs> we had um, the, the Transatlantic Cruise book. Julie Young. For the 20, Julie Young, there you go. I knew it wasn't Julie Elliott. Um, we had the Transatlantic Cruise booked. Um, so we had to go to Italy for that, to get that. And we were there a couple of days beforehand. And Just then we spent... Listen to yourself. I know. Um, it was our little treat for the year. I think, you know, um, yeah, it was. People do that and it's like the treat for their life. It's like mm, it's the, it's a holiday of a lifetime, and you just you know, just squeeze right. one in. It absolutely is, and I don't, I you know, I'm not, I'm not dissing that because that is absolutely true. Oh, I think cruise. the errors, the error. I oh, know you would, you would hate it. Well, actually, yeah, you say you would have hated it, but you're not even willing to give it a chance. But um, which I understand because I get seasick. You get motion sick in the back of our car, and I'm in the flipping front of a car. I get motion like, sick watching cars. I mean, exactly. I am just hypersensitive. <laughs> I have been seasick looking at the sea, just looking yeah. at it. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. And then when we were on the cruise, we decided to book up for next year. So we're doing another one next what? year, Transatlantic. Yeah. Right. We, we loved uh, it. Hang on. We just loved it. Yeah, hang on. What dates? Because that's important to me. What dates <laughs> have you? Because you, wow. it's adoption month, adoption week, adoption millennia, whatever the hell we're up to now these days. What is it? Mm, I'm, 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 Wary about saying when it is, to be honest with you. But anyway, it's three weeks next time because we're doing one cruise on a back-to-back, which means that you stay on the ship and you do two cruises. So we do the first week, which is going around to Greece and Dubrovnik and all that sort of stuff. And then the second cruise is going across the uh, the transatlantic cruise again for two weeks. So it'll be three weeks. That was nicely deflected. But when is this? (laughs) October. (laughs) Oh, you absolute pig. I hate your guts. Honestly. I feel like I've been single-handedly holding back the sto- the tsunami of unhappiness Ooh. about Adoption Week. Well, uh, Adoption Week, Adoption Month. Um, I think we can both agree that my love of Adoption Week <laughs> waned a couple of years ago when I kind of started listening to what people thought about it and thought, okay, this isn't actually... Oh. Yeah. Don't ingratiate no. yourself with the naysayers um, by giving it all this like, oh, I'm 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 a listening I'm listening to the community and all that. You just don't well, like it up. because you didn't win the first for adoption adoption something of the year. Um, I did actually. I did win it. Um, in How many times did you win it? I won it once because you're only allowed to win it once, Al, aren't you? That's fine. I'll let you off then. Um, well, <laughs> I, to be honest, I think that it was really understated this year, Adoption Week. Really, Good. really understated. Good. Just didn't see much of it. Um, well, I didn't because I didn't have Wi-Fi for the most part. There's images of you on a deck chair um, with burly sailors <laughs> rubbing lotion into your feet. I wish. Um, <laughs> you wish. Um, yeah, every, every dear listener, every three or four days I'd get a, like a, you'd get some wi-fi from somewhere and then there'd be a picture of him on the deck going more ocean yeah. uh, and, and drinks there's often drinks yeah, oh yeah, there, was, there, drinks. Was, there was always a cocktail or a glass of wine or something yeah well i got <laughs> doxxed and all sorts of things have been happening since we you know i know i did see it and i did feel sorry for you but i thought oh bless if you're going to put so, yourself out there that's what happens so, i'm just oh saying. bless uh Waiter, waiter, <laughs> bring, bring <laughs> me another wine. Chardonnay. <laughs> um, yeah, it's quite an interesting time. Uh, it's all fine. It's all fine. I was not, not too worried about it all. It was all nonsense. Well, the thing is, I, I, 
I, we talked about it briefly a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? And we've we have talked about social media a lot. Um, Twitter is just a, an absolute hellhole anyway at the minute. There's these weird, weird and wonderful people following you. They're able to comment. They're tagging you and stuff and all that sort of stuff. And I think that that goes along with Elon's plans for it. I don't know what what the story well, is there. He's but barking. He's he's barking. He seems to want to ruin a, a good thing. And you know, Twitter used to be a wonderful place. However, um, I just now I'm not I'm I'm. I'm just not putting myself on Twitter anymore. I'll tweet occasionally, but that's it. Um, no. Mainly, but well, there's there's part of me that says, well, I'm not in that space anymore. Let's be honest. You know, I'm not in the adoption mm-hmm. space in the UK anymore. So, yeah. you know, do I have a right to comment on that? No, not really. Um, I think for the most part, though, um, we're now not even allowed to comment as adoptive parents. And, you know, that's, you know, you could, you could argue that one. I get it. But actually... You know, it used to be a space where we could um, try and champion change yeah. and advocate yeah. and all that sort of stuff, but we're not allowed to do that either. So, well, yeah, I so I'll just stay off it. I'm not, I'm not really bothered about it anymore. It took a while, but you know, there you go. No, I mean, I think it, the world has moved on. I think there's an element of that being appropriate. I mean, we had our day in the sun. The world has moved on. Um, I, I do wonder. It's, it is seem an interesting time, and um, this change of foot. I mean, we had the episode with Fee at the weekend, and that that went down we really did. well. And that's yeah, really well responded. So if we can put up, create a platform for people, that's really cool. Lots and lots of people, you know, still want to share their story. I was in a meeting today, actually, and I'll maybe not say what the meeting was. Um, but I think the the people who were organizing it, they were looking for specific perspectives around a specific issue. So that's me being vague. Um, <laughs> Normally, that's what memes are about. But yeah, yeah, on. yeah. Um, and so there was a group of adopters talking about their perspective on a certain issue. Uh, and they sort of they said, oh, let's, we did a really quick round robin. They said, well, let's just find a little bit more about people. And I thought, oh, this is, this is disaster, this, because now <laughs> we will, there's a real truth, isn't there? If, you know, if you want to get adopters to talk about their story, you'll just never <laughs> shut them up. Adopters love yeah. to talk about their story. So it, it just, is. the yeah. entire meeting was us doing it. We finally got round and there was 10 minutes left of the meeting. But we, uh, we had touched on lots of stuff. So that's, you know, and I was part of that, you know. I love an opportunity yeah. to talk. And um, shall I tell you what I've been up to, as opposed to you laying on deck chairs and risking the dangers of splinters? You crack on, crack on. Tell us what you've been up to. Well, I've been really thinking hard about peer support in terms of sort of families. I mean, there's a there's a historic, really big element of peer support in terms of adoption generally, but this is I'm kind of like forget all that. Um, I was just, I've really been thinking and pondering and researching um, peer support in terms of challenging behavior, really, and just um, did some work with Adopt for Life in Aust- in Australia, Canada. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't mix up my colonies. Um, no. It's awkward, embarrassing. Um, this colonial types. Um, but really thinking about how we create um, peer support for families who are really struggling in terms of managing difficult behavior and that is across all families who experience that you know biological families sen families uh, you know children with it, sort of neurological complications you know fasd all of that sort of thing so i've been really plowing into that and, and lots of opportunities have come up to for me to do more of that so i'm working with a local school i'm working across the midlands i've been to birmingham scott i went to birmingham. Sutton coalfield yeah birmingham wow. you're right yeah up. Morot. Um, sorry if you're from Birmingham. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. You can come check out our complaints always, department. It's always Jenny Jones when I speak to Jenny Jones. She says, "I'm from Dudley. 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 
Sorry. <laughs> um, Apologies. So, yeah, I've, I've been doing a lot of work around peer support. So that's really interesting. So, yeah. Well, that is interesting, actually, because, um, yeah, the um, Irish government here have just put uh, um, uh, they've opened up for applications for um, organisations to apply for funding for peer support. So Ooh. it's clearly becoming a thing again. Um, what and, is the issue that they're looking for peer support? Is it just in general? Well, it could be for anything. It could it literally oh, could be all right, for anything. All right. Yeah. We should do that um, for your FASD. Well, duh. What do you think I'm doing? Sitting on my All right, backside, sorry, honestly. Um, so yeah, much to come back plan, grumpy but, off the holiday. But the, <laughs> yes, I have, because I yes. don't want to be back from my holiday. <laughs> um, but no, it's, it's interesting uh, that it came listen, through. Uh, sorry, I'm going to interrupt, but I did get a message off you saying, don't even think about contacting me for like 48 hours. <laughs> it's like, oh, Moody. <laughs> well, jet lag, you know, flying back overnight, all that sort ship of stuff. Ship lag? Yeah, jet lag, not ship lag. That's a wound, isn't it? Anyway, um, yeah, so it's clearly, I think, and and also this thing, um, and I don't know if it's a big thing in the UK, men's sheds. Yes. Have you heard of men's sheds? Because they seem yeah, to yeah. me to to be kind of the, um, almost like support groupish kind of um, yeah things. Um, and they seem to be growing. I mean, I, I first heard about them here Massive. and I was like, oh, what's this? Um, and I mean, it's quite clear what it is as soon as you read the description of a, of a men's shed. But I think... Um, I think that um, kind of the authorities are now seeing the importance of peer support. And I think part of that comes, comes of, you know, the professionals actually, you know, um, being part of their own support networks, you know, so social workers and uh, teachers yeah. and, you know, that sort of stuff. And I think that actually um, people are now starting to see the, the kind of the, the opportunities to be able to, you know, I, I'm not saying provide less support, but certainly, you know, by doing that, it kind of negates any... Long, t longer term issues that people might have because they're getting support from their, their peers. So I, I you know, I, I think it's clearly growing. Yeah, I mean, I'll Lovely. send you some peer. I've got some really interesting papers that I've been um, reading, like academic papers about peer support. Not, not just sort of the, the different issues around mental health and different things in children yeah. with high levels, high level of needs. But for me, it, it just seems like it, it, it scratches an itch that professionals can't. Mm. And if you can somehow weave professionals into that peer support network so that they're available or they're kind of slightly on the periphery but can be pulled in when there's issues. Yeah. And it really, it just really struck me. I was a, I was doing a thing. It was an online thing. And um, we couldn't literally, we couldn't get through the introduction because people were overwhelmed yeah. that there was people like them out there. Yeah, yeah. People were, you know, people in tears literally saying, yeah. I, I, I just thought I was alone. I just thought, mm -hmm. and um, you know, this is a biological parent of children with complex needs and challenging be behavior and, and just genuinely moved and, every, and other people going, yeah, and me too. And so like you go, well, I don't, what more do we need to do? Yeah. Like as a start point. Um, and I think as well, that, I mean, you'll, you'll find your, like everybody finds their own kind of group to fit into, don't you? Because, you know, like there's been LGBT parenting groups. I've never really engaged with them because I'm kind of, I just see myself as a parent. I don't see myself defining myself via my sexuality. Um, but what what was interesting, um, I think it was, uh, well, it was beginning of September, mid-September, we held our first FASD Ireland um, peer support oh, group that's for right, parents yeah. and carers. Um, and, you know, I was, I think um, having, having some experience from um, running peer support groups at Adoption UK all those years ago when I used to work there, um, my real intention was to say, look, you might not get any solutions out of coming. However, what you will know, what you will feel is part of 
a group of people who are going yeah. through similar things and you might pick up some new ideas uh, and i think that was what everybody went away with was you know not necessarily finding solutions to the problems but just knowing that you know there's other people there who are going through the same things and in actual fact when we group back together you know I know that some of them will say, well, I tried that and it worked or it didn't work or, you know, this yeah. worked for better for me. Blah, blah. And I think that's really the whole point in them. So, yeah, it's... Um... But they the also bring specialist knowledge because, you know, I've been in groups and one of the things is you go out to share, share contacts. Who is, the, you know, if, if you're in a local area, who is the person to go to in that building? Don't speak to that person, speak to that person. Ring this number, yeah. not that number. And that stuff is invaluable because it takes hours of stress out of people's lives. So... Uh, and I've been th really sort of thinking about, well, how do you keep them sustainable? Because oftentimes they have a sort of like anything, there's a moment of honeymoon where everything's great. And then well, like anything, it gets yeah. a bit stale. But how do you keep it fresh? How do you keep it interesting? And so yeah. really looking into that and thinking about how we do that. And because I'm supporting a group of um, a group in, in Canada, I'm on a, it's an online support group that I facilitate and mm. um, doing an online, another online group in the Midlands. in um, <laughs> Yeah. yeah that's probably the end of that contract yeah um, absolutely <laughs> <laughs> um, oops um but just really thinking how to replicate that on a bigger scale because i think the mm. issue of challenging violent aggressive behavior is just so prevalent across yeah, so many absolutely. communities and um and and there's rest the community the, the issue itself can often restrict people's ability to get out of the house or yeah, go and attend yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. Um, especially given times and all that sort of stuff. I'd be really interested. We'll, we'll talk about that more, I think, because you're right. Keeping them fresh is a real issue, isn't it? Because, you know, when you're face-to-face, -face, so as an example, coffee mornings, you used to do Adoption UK, you used to do coffee mornings. And we used to, I think it was like three a year in one local authority. Mm -hmm. um, and it was lovely because parents could all come together, kids could play, blah, blah, blah. Um, but people would tend not to come because it was just a, just a coffee morning it wasn't for them you know they wanted to have a, maybe yeah. a an afterward drink or you know and it's just finding ways of of you know especially because doing a lot of stuff online now and i think as well you know ireland um getting from a to b takes probably double the time it does in, in the uk because obviously but we've got some great roads but we've also got some yeah. really bad roads um but it's ireland islands are quite rural isn't it like it's yeah, predominantly rural absolutely. it's a big yeah. It's a big country with a lot, a lot of people. It's a bit peculiar, yeah. isn't it? The geography it is of it. Very, yeah, you're right. Yeah. So yeah, I'll be interested to to look into that with you. Well, I shall share them, them academic papers with you. So if you remember a long time ago, Scott, when you were young and fresh-faced and hadn't been on three cruises, uh, Nepalese spa with burly men putting hot rocks on you. I don't know um, what you what photographs you've been looking at. Have you have you registered for my OnlyFans or something? I don't know what's going on. Well, there. I have registered actually. Uh, Disco Dave from the northeast. Disco um, Dave. <laughs> um, oh dear. Oh dear. Oh, how did you lose your registration? Um, the we had a we had a guest on in the middle of all that. You were in, I think you were you were still in England um, at the time, and we had a guest. We spoke to Ellie Costello from Square pegs and i have to we say do. we had a fantastic chat and um, square pegs is an organization that is set up in terms of um, supporting children's inc inclusion in school and looking how to support families how to support children and how to actually develop schools practice it's fantastic and mm -hmm. um, what do you recall from that conversation scott <laughs> it was a long time a long time ago back when you were young and happy <laughs> i do remember it was quite the laugh that's what i remember oh. Yes. <laughs> it was yes. quite controversial as well, some of it, I have to be honest. <laughs> well, 
<laughs> I mean, if we were a professional podcast, we'd re-listen to it, wouldn't we? And we probably would. You're right. You're absolutely right. Um, I think um, it was it was another one of those times where I just said yes, I'll come to that, and then um, just turned up and and you know, well, very rare do I do, do any prep for um, our podcast now because I think actually off the cuff is a lot better. But I do recall it was an, a very interesting conversation, and actually it wasn't with the person I thought it was going to be with, which just proves I do very little in terms of preparation because I thought it was somebody else, and I wasn't looking forward to it. However, it was Ellie, and it was fine. It was. I'm slightly. We had a fantastic conversation in terms of kind of the the bigger political environment that's created this this kind of really complicated. So she had some she had some shocking statistics about the number of children out of or not in school, and how then how that's even that how that measure is politicised. Um, but a really good a good sort of measure on the bigger the, the big stuff because actually sometimes you can get down to why isn't that teacher doing that? It was like a, actually this is a culture, and that was really interesting. Um, and we had, yes, yeah, she she was a right laugh. We'll have to get we'll have to get back on. She was an absolute star. Um, but she's got they've got a book out, um, which I would recommend people buying if this is your world or you're a teacher in education. It's called Square Pegs: Inclusion, Compassion, and Fitting in: A Guide for Schools. And it's been written by a whole raft of people. Um, some of them are friends of the show. Uh, Jane Pickthall is in there. Who, if people oh. remember, right back at the beginning, was virtual school head. It was the head of the virtual school head. Um. So yeah, it's a great um, listen. So I'll we'll put it on next, and we'll just go for that. But Scott, it's lovely to have you back in the UK. Not the UK. You're in Ireland. Sorry. Oh, good in, grief. In this hemisphere, that's what you meant to say. Well, yeah, in the in the northeast hemisphere of of the universe. <laughs> um, and I have enjoyed watching you travel around, and I, I am I'm praying diligently through your um your your recompression into normal life, which I can see you're taking hard to. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to share with you what from January to next December, what's booked. Cause I think that you probably what? just, yeah. Well, there's I, more. Probably, we'll talk about that another time. I feel. In actual fact, I won't, I'll just say, no, I'm not available then. <laughs> I'll do it. I'm washing my hair in Acapulco. Um, yeah. Sadly, our credit card company doesn't, <laughs> doesn't really like us at the minute. <laughs> However, sure they don't. You, know, you reach a certain age and you think, balls to it. There you go. Well, I have been thinking about this recently, thinking, do I really want to leave my money to my kids? But that's another story. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd have to have money to leave to them. But yeah, I know. I know what you mean. Yes, well, exactly. You know, it's called by... skiing. You know what's called skiing. It's the official term for it. Skiing. Spending your kids' inheritance. All right. So I will make a lifestyle choice to move into a millet's tent. Mm-hmm. And I'll Which get... you, would, you would love anyway. And cash in the house, yeah, yeah, and spend it on fast living, whatever you like. Yeah, I'm sure your wife Excellent. would agree with you on that. But you know, oh, she's she, but she just she's got her own version of fast living. Yeah, I'm anyway. sure she has. But to be fair, she's away for six weeks, so you can do whatever you like in that six weeks, and she could come back and you could she's be living. She's not going in... for six weeks. How long is she going for? To Australia. Yeah. Dear listener, this is like a this is a post podcast chat. Um, she's going to Australia for uh, four weeks, three and a half, four weeks, something. Oh, okay. Well, four weeks. You've got four weeks. You can put the house, get the estate agents in before she goes to take the photos. So send her out shopping to get what she needs for her holiday. Get them in to do the photos, and then get it on the market as soon as she leaves in that. 
But I, can I, I'll tell this story, then we should go. I had a friend who, a girlfriend whose parents, she went to a Camp America, which was used to be a thing, didn't it? I mean, it still is a thing, yeah. but it used to be a thing and when you used to have to write a letter and they'd take you. Um, and so this was maybe the early 90s, um, late 80s. She went to Camp America and then um, she got a letter while she was in, in America saying, from her parents, she had nowhere else to live saying, oh, by the way, we've moved, but not saying where to. Oh, wow. so she okay. she flew back to England and her parents had, that she'd moved they'd moved county they hadn't just moved street they'd moved county <laughs> it was before social media so she said she's like the, the telephone number of church just so yeah anyway that's another story well anyway yeah anyway yeah don't I shouldn't give you ideas should I um no. excellent well on that note Bon Jovi anchovy So today we are joined by Ellie Costello from Square Peg. Good, good evening, good afternoon, good morning, depending on what time you're listening to this podcast, Ellie. Hello, thanks Hello. for having me. You're very welcome. Hello. Um, so let's um, just start at the beginning, because you have been on before, but it was quite a while ago now. So you, you can class yourself as friend of the show on your, your yeah, Twitter bio, definitely. your email signature, all the rest of it. <laughs> And get but a t-shirt yeah exactly yeah yeah we yeah. do mugs um but you have to buy them we don't just give them away you have to actually buy them <laughs> do you just want to give a quick introduction of who you are and uh what you do yeah so i'm ellie i um am uh, executive director Ooh, of a nice. little um, community and trust company small but mighty um, that's been around uh, since the start of 2020 officially, uh, set up as a social enterprise the year before in 2019. And we work to raise awareness and affect change on behalf of children and their families who are struggling to attend, access or remain in education. So our heartlands is persistent absence. That was my lived experience um, with uh, my eldest and then my youngest. Mm. Um, uh, and... Um, uh, but we we think and formulate any attendance difficulties. So we cover in our thinking all types of square pegs who are struggling to fit and receive their education entitlement um, and um, and access school or or whatever type of provision that that is best for them. Um, so we're the we were in 2020 the only organisation that was really talking about persistent absence and attendance. Mm. Um, nobody wanted to talk about it. Um, my journey started in 2014, um, and by the time we got to uh, so if we talk about the attendance data in the autumn of 2018, uh, it was pushing three quarters of a million, and in the autumn of 2019, it was 920,000. So we're already pushing a million pre-pandemic. And then, of course, what's happened is, thanks to Hang on, stop, 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 right. That is a mind-blowing statistic. Yeah. That, when you, so can you unpick that for me? Because how many children are we talking about? Is, is there 14 million children in yeah. in school? Exactly. Or eight, well, children. Yeah. So that's that's pushing to, well, it's not 10%, but it's 7 8%. Yeah, it was then, and it's now coming up to almost a quarter. I think it's 23% is is our persistently absent from school. Um, and so, of course, there's a... Oh. I know. Stop, stop, right? Make sense of that for me. I don't know about you, That's Scott, but mind blowing figures. figure... Isn't it? So, so uh, yeah, pre-pandemic, we were already saying this is a ridiculous number of children. 
Um, and the, but nobody really wanted to talk about it because it was sort of brushed under the carpet as, oh, they're truants. It's all yeah. truancy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And of course, the lion's share of the coverage goes to children who are excluded. And let's not, you know, um, beast about the bush. You know, I think there's 9,000 um, permanently excluded kids in uh, at the moment um, from school, and that's 9,000 too many. <laughs> you know, so it's it's not yeah. an, it's not an acceptable number. But it it was it was you know dwarfed by persistent absenteeism, and for us it's all part of the same paradigm. So we I've I've I formulated um, the idea that if we look at it through a distress lens, um, if you model it under um, fight, flight, freeze, flop, drop, um, if you're at risk of exclusion, you're a fight um, usually. Um, and you're considered disruptive and challenging. If school and or home is not safe, you're a flight risk and your class is a truant. Um, and if you're flop, flop, freeze uh, in collapse, um, probably from fawning and caping for too long, masking for too long, or just not recognised as, as as having a requirement to need or on a waiting list, then you're more likely to be a persistent absentee. But actually, all of these children are demonstrating understandable behaviours because of the circumstances that they are in and that it has become untenable to them. So no child... Um, you know, um, uh, just wakes up and decides to be a fight risk or a flight risk or a persistent absentee. You know, yeah. there is always writing on the wall, um, and and the numbers were can, rising. Can, yeah. can I? Can I just say? Can I ask a question? Um, just just to make it absolutely clear, what is the de- is there a is there a sort of a definition, an accepted definition of what a persistent absentee is? Is there a is there a threshold for that? Is you know, yes. just to get a real understanding. Yeah, so it's all very data-led at the moment. Um, I'd need to check the exact number of sessions that you have to miss in order to miss 10% of school. But, and I think it is, once you miss more than, once you tip over more than 10 missed sessions, you are classed a persistent absentee. And bear in mind that there's two registration marks a day. Mm. So it's very, very easy for children now to be considered persistently absent like you can have that would be five days wouldn't it yeah yeah. it's five days and and it's accumulated or consecutive so it's so if you've got a kid who's had chickenpox or norovirus or anything they're suddenly hitting that that concerning data threshold and this is the thing about the sensitivity around the data now is that it is very easy to suddenly start receiving those letters uh, advising you that your child um, attainment is at risk and their life chance is a negligible as a result um so so it's massively massively problematic because under parental accountability measures that were brought in under the last labor government which were an attempt to crack down on antisocial behavior increase parental yeah. accountability and the solution to that was making sure that all children were in school 100 percent of the time and, and the way that we were going to manage that and pull on the lever to make sure that that behaviour was managed was through the threat of fines and prosecutions. So what we saw was um, heads could no longer exercise discretion in terms of term time holiday. Mm. Things like that came in. This was all mm. under the last Labour government. I mentioned that because it's very, very easy to blame everything on for the last 13 years. But actually, the mechanisms and levers were, were, were there pre this 
government. Yeah. Um, but this government supersized it. <laughs> Um, but, um, uh, you know, an austerity didn't help and COVID didn't help. And there's mm. lots of things that added to it. Um, but I think it's it's really important to understand where the threads came from and how the narrative around parents really started shifting to a deficit model in terms of how we talk about parents and parenting. It's always from a, a deficit model. And in fact, many of our families, before yeah. they can access any help, it's go on a parenting course, you know, in order to access something. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, that that's not going to solve um, living in poverty. It's not going to um, solve insecure housing or not having enough money for the bus fare or uniform or um, sanitary products or, you know, so it just doesn't help. Um, and that's not to say that investing, you know, supporting parents to try to be the best parents that they can be and want to be given their circumstances and their baseline and everything else but it's 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 not it's not the silver bullet and i think in terms of yeah. sort of selling behavior as the silver bullet in schools and improving parenting in the home those two things still haven't got rid of the socioeconomic factors that so many are dealing with I have so many questions. So, Scott, if you if you want to jump in, Scott's munching on something. He's having his tea late, isn't he? Or his, or his, his supper. He's got his crumpets. It's tea. It's late. I've just been having oh, a bag of celebrations. Celebrations. All right. Well, you eat your celebration. I'm having the Malteser. My and favorite Malteser. <laughs> I mean, there's so many ways we could go because even just kind of understanding that the nature of the problem and the data. And I think that I was, ref I, we've, all my children have always gone to school really oddly, apart from one of my children who just decided she didn't want to when she didn't fancy. And we worked, we, we cut, and you know, so I kind of put on my social work head, right, let's collaborate, let's work really well. And we did, and we kept absolutely fantastic. The school pastoral staff were amazing. But nonetheless, out of the blue, we got a letter that said, your daughter's fallen below a threshold. If you do not resolve this, this will be, uh, you will be subject, potentially you could be fined or you could be sent to prison. And uh, like we, I have no worries that I'm going to get sent to prison. And, and unless it's an open prison, then I'm up for it. <laughs> but, um, um, which I did say to them in the meeting, we then, so I, so, I, so I called a meeting, I was absolutely livid. And I said, this is appalling that you've sent this to me. And they were going, oh, it's okay, Mr. Coates. You know, it's, it's okay, it's okay. I was going, I'm not appalled for me. I'm appalled for the, you know, the the mum who's struggling or the dad who's got mental ill health or the, the who, who don't know what to do. And you've just come and you've made it a thousand times worse. And how often are people getting letters? I mean, what do people come to, to Peg, Square Peg? I use sort of an open door for people to come and go help for schools and parents. So... I don't do direct support because I can't do everything else and provide direct support. But we work. Why not, Ellie? Why not? I know. Why not? You should spread yourself so thin, you get nothing done. I, yeah, sorry. I know. I can't do it. I can't do it because it's it just, it's, yeah. So, but we do work in partnership with Not Fine in School. And that is a, um, a support group, close support group, brilliant website with all of the resources that you could possibly ever want to shake a stick at, really. Um, and um, so it's notfinanceschool.co.uk. And there's a close Facebook group, Not Finance School Parent Support or Family Support. And um, that is actually where the founder of Square Peg and I met in 2018. 
So we found each uh. other then, um, and um, I, she and I joined. And when I joined, there was um, around 500 members for Not Finer School. Um, as of last week, there were 47,500 members. And the activity on the group is running at 60%. So it just goes to show you. And we, we've been effective with comms, but we're not that effective. <laughs> you know, so there yeah. is just a plethora of families who are fine who are reaching out for support and to give you an idea about letters there's it's one of the most lovely ad, administrated moderator groups in there and we there's some um online forums that are really quite fruity and, and not very safe yeah. to be in this one is 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 brilliant you know, and it's all done by volunteers, but it's done with integrity and compassion and care. And um, it's a wonderful space. Um, but and it's welcome to anybody who is experiencing any kind of um, uh, attendance difficulty. So we kind of that's where we started thinking about the whole range of square pegs. Um, but it is um, a scary place because the stories that you get are mind boggling. And the circumstances in which families are being sent these letters are totally inappropriate. I went through it in 2014 and um, and, and at that point, the school would say, oh, we have to send a letter um, and we yeah. have to refer you to the local authority. And of course, I'm now sort of much older and wiser and um, bigger and braver. And I understand that actually, no, 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 the head doesn't have to send a letter. It's advised by the DfE and guidance that you could send a letter it's best practice right but you don't have to you heads can exercise discretion and actually one of the big um pieces of work that we've been doing is really making sure that the language is right but the language comes out of that anti-social behavior parental accountability measures yeah. under the last labor government so it really is that sort of this idea that parents are unreliable untrustworthy feckless Snowflakey, helicoptery, la lazy, pointy elbows, yeah. all of that. Um, and so, what they need is a short, short, short letter, to, and that'll fix everything. And then we'll we'll tighten the screws. You know, we'll, we'll threaten them with the fine. The letters are some of. I mean, so what happened in um, last year, May last year, was um, non-statutory guidance was published um, by the DfE in draft form, and it came into effect in September last year. And we saw a 70% increase in our membership. So I think we have acquired since August 22, 16,000 new members. So the whole membership increased by 50%. And in the last 28 days, we've had more than two and a half thousand members join just this September, um, 5th of September to 5th of October. Um, and again, it's because, so Fran and I knew that we were in there kind of going, nobody's talking about persistent absence, but if we shine this yeah. spotlight on it, it's going to be, it's going to sort of unleash a whole load of attention that our families don't need. But we were stuck between a rock and a hard place that we had to start talking about it and raising the issue in order for culture's um, practice, hopefully, to shift. Yeah. Um, and that was one of the reasons why we wrote the book, was to help that conversation. But the whole um, – the, the response by the systems 
has been more terrifying in terms of impact and consequence than we ever could have predicted. And, and that's partly because it came off the back of COVID, but it's partly because it is such, it is such as you said, Al. It's it does make things a hundred times worse to all to to be to receive that letter. Children are self harming out of shame mm. because they, they they feel they're letting their parents down more, and it increases the risk of truancy. It increases the risk of exclusion and and then being at mercy of of, of criminalisation and, and county lines and all sorts of criminality. Um, it increases, nobody, everybody talks about, or everybody, some people accept the school to prison pipeline exists, not everybody, um, but nobody wants to talk about the school to cams pipeline. And I think we have to kind of, one of the most uncomfortable truths that we're trying to talk about is that actually it's the relevance and purpose of education, who's it for? And what's it doing to our kids? And our kids are holding up a mirror and going, can't do this, can't meet the expectation because the expectation is, is un- it, it's, it's not even um, a reflection of anything that I experienced 40 years ago. It just, yeah. you know, it, it, school is so different. The demands are so different. And I went to that, a school that, you know, used to use the cane and the slipper. So there was, you know, pretty strict behaviour yeah. management. That, but then that, I often have that conversation with people. I don't know about you, Scott, but I, I often talk to people and they go, wasn't, we didn't see this. And, and when I was at school, you know, which is the 80s, 70s and 80s, um, I didn't see this. And is there a, we did talk about this before we, turn press to record button a little bit. So I'm not going to draw you onto the rocks too much. Might try. Um, but do you think that there's an underpinning value base or ethos or I'm not sure of the right word that that is altered, that is coming, that is that is kind of making this pressure, that's exerting this pressure on families in a way that was never exerted, you know, historically. I think there's several. The laws are, yeah, I yeah. think there's several things. So I've, I've been reflecting on. Firstly, we've done some really great work, and unfortunately, it did stop or, or got stalled when Shore Start centres were closed. But what we do have in early years and in antenatal care is we have a a, 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 a new generations coming through of parents who are much more attachment focused. So they're much more grounded in responding to their child's needs and getting to know their child. They may not be nailing it, but at least that we are focused on looking after our expectant mothers, helping to prepare families as best we can. It's not, you know, nobody's saying that it's perfect. But the point is, is that there's a lot of really good work that my mum and her generation didn't receive in terms of understanding your baby and getting to know your toddler and things like that. Mm-hmm. Now, off the back of that, of course, we had the Super Nanny Brigade and the Gina Fords. And so we had a lot of behavior. Yeah. Ooh, we had a lot of behaviorism <laughs> yeah. coming through as a, as a bit of a silver bullet. And that was replicated in our schools. We had a lot of, you know, um, reward charts and attendance awards and house points and all of these things some of which felt familiar in our experience of school but actually were used on a supersized level and if you if you combine that with many parents feel that um 
they kind of give their children over to the education system and then they're spoken at. You know, they, they kind of lose some kind of agency in the joint education and raising of their child. And actually, and that's even more pronounced once they get to secondary school, where it is drop them at the gate. Thanks very much. You don't need to do any more. So there's this sort of disconnect where I think we've got some interesting schisms that are going on around parents of, they may not articulate it, but they do value um, uh, getting to know their kids, um, advocating for their kids. They're much more attuned to their kids. So the rising complaints that you're getting from families who don't feel that they're listened to, it's really interesting because it's it, it you might have angry parents, but at least they are engaged parents that are not feeling heard. And I think there is a bit of a push and pull where education perhaps has coasted on this idea that they know best and that parents give their children to the system and yeah. and yeah. hand over the schooling and actually if you sort of think about early years and you know preschool age and all that you know reading at home and hot housing your child with ben, beethoven's fifth symphony or whatever it is you know yeah. but but um but there is this sort of schism that happens. So I think that that's interesting culturally in terms of the engagement of families with education and how they experience it. Um, but also we've seen, um, you know, formal education come much earlier into the education system. And so those expectations, really, we reception is a little bit play-based if you're lucky. And then they're straight into, you know, very... Um, uh, traditional and traditional high stakes baseline testing and all the rest of it. And and under um, Minister Gove, we saw the academic levels go up two years overnight. And what that meant was the the, the, the standard expectation for a year three became the standard what is is what used to be expected at the start of year five. So it's a massive massive leap in terms of levels that were expected and that again i think yeah. led to an erosion of a much more child-centered um uh, primary key stage one existence you know it's, it's very different it's interesting because i'm quite new to the education space but apparently this pendulum thing has been going on for decades <laughs> you know it's kind of that right. it's kind of that that thing i think what's interesting now is that we do have neuroscientific research that is evidence-based due to brain imaging scanning and all the research on um, adverse child exper uh, childhood experiences, toxic stress, um, and recovering and healing from trauma, but also um, what happens when too much toxic stress happens in, in childhood and then what that looks like later on in adulthood in terms of, uh, you know, health inequalities and, and things like that. So that is something that we didn't have Um however many years ago, if we go back, I don't know, to the 80s, but that's when a lot of the research around um, around child development and the impact of, of, of complex trauma was sort of emerging because we started having MRI scans. Um, the thing is, is that education hasn't really got that memo. That there is, um, so in terms of um, keeping up with the science of child development, it's somehow I have discovered a bit of a background between those that believe that um, it is a rich and fertile ground where children are supported to learn 
versus those that believe that actually it's about rigor and discipline and um, very adult-led approaches in order to school the child to reach their best selves um, or to become their best selves. And, and that apparently I saw, I had Anthony Seldon, Sir Anthony Seldon deliver a, a keynote at a conference um, last month. And he was talking about the two sort of education philosophers of the 18th century. And one of them felt that schools should be, and had written that, that life was short, brutal, and oh, I can't remember what it was. It was meant to be something, um, it's not the right word, but it was grim, short, and brutal. That was life. And that childhood, you know, should be sort of... Um, indoctrinated and beaten out of the child in order to get, you know, because life is short and brutal and they've just got to get on with it. And so there's this sort of school of thought that actually childhood is an irrelevant inconvenience. And 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 then on the other side, you've got um, people who are around at the same period. I don't know their names because I'm not, not, I haven't looked into it enough. But in exactly the same period, who are writing about how to nurture children and how to come alongside them, and we're really sort of observing how children learn through play, and that was happening in the 1760s. So it's it's really interesting to me because I don't think. I think this battleground in the UK has been going on for a very long time and families of children and professionals are caught in the middle of it. Right, I have a couple of questions. I want to go back. I want to go back a bit to the letters thing and I want to ask you uh, how much of an impact do you think that things like the Ofsted system, behaviour czars, all of those kinds of things that now schools are kind of... Who, under this pressure to perform, how how much you know, in terms of letters anyway, and kind of schools' reaction to children, the behaviour, what the behaviour policy looks like, etc. How much do you ha- how much of an impact does that have on mm. on on kind of exclusions and uh, all these things? And I, I you know I, I have to say I love the the term square peg because that is just so apt for the children that we you know, rep, not represent, we don't represent them, but, you know, the children we look after and the parent we care for. Yeah. But how much of that is as a result of all of this stuff that's coming down, you know, in terms of your children must behave like this, children must behave like that, you know, Ofsted yeah. rules, blah, blah, blah. Is, is, is that having an impact? Absolutely. I mean, we saw, didn't we, earlier in the year with the death of Ruth Perry, mm. Um, and and that opened a, a floodgates, I think, of of real honesty and transparency from the sector. So I'll come back to that in a minute. But in terms of the top down pressure of an inspectorate that is coming in to make a judgment and on against the head teacher's name, you know that that yeah. that's, that is what the framework is, and it's a single word decision. And you look at the drivers as to the purpose of the inspection um, of the inspectorate of Her Majesty's Chief Inspector, and you kind of look at who's appointed there and why. And and you can sort of get all, yeah, deep and meaningful about it. But at the end of the day, the inspection system is there apparently to drive improvement. But unfortunately, what's happened, several factors are at play. We've got a fragmented education system. We've got, even if you've got a multi-academy trust who aren't accountable to anyone, 
Mm. Um, if you've got multi-academy trusts that um, receives um, a judgment, um, I think the thing that's most distressing at the moment, this speaks to parents who are really um, trying to raise concerns about maybe some of the policies in their schools or the impact on their children. And they're trying to ra raise it with the multi-academy trust governors or whoever it is, um, and they have no voice. So that sense of community cohesion with schools um, being at the heart of communities and serving communities and the accountability that is now pulled away, and many parents haven't really, are only just catching up to that. That's not to say that there's not some absolutely brilliant maps out there who are doing a really good job and some really good... Um, uh, you know, maintain schools as well, because washing over everybody is austerity, uh, uh, which took away um, local authority services. And then we had two more bites of austerity. And then we had school budget cuts. And then we had two more sets of budget cuts for schools. And then we had COVID. So there's so much at play. Plus, we had the Children and Families Act enacted and the government refused to fund it for 0 to 5 and 16 to 25. So there's all of this interplay that's happening, plus high stakes testing. I think there's a lot on assessment and curriculum. So there's there's so many things. And Ofsted is meant to come in and judge. They're meant to inspect on one day depending on the size of your school. I think you might have two days if you're a certain above a certain size. And they're meant to come in. But the, the framework is, I think the thing that I hadn't understood is that the framework is, is meant to be independent and impartial, but actually it really is driving, funneling everything into a quite a narrow, politically mm. driven view of what education should be. Um and and it is unbelievable high stakes. So if you if you um, are ahead and you get requires improvement, um, uh, you're out of a job and your school can be converted to an academy. Yeah. So it's it's massively massively high stakes. Um, but what happened was it was this sort of perfect storm where leaders and senior leaders within schools then started to sort of deliver the mechanisms that were needed to be inspected on so that would be sort of robust policies and procedures and having your values you know living you know um, exercising your values and driving up attainment and following progress eight and showing robust accountability measures and all of this and actually what we lost was the children at the center yeah. and um and it became more polarized in terms of what we've seen a schools that are more extreme from each other. So you've got very, very traditional um, schools that work in some communities. And you've got, you know, a tiny bit of, you know, innovative um, education practice going on. And you've got everyone in the middle who are literally tearing their hair out and doing their best they can with higher than average pupil premium um, uh, cohorts and SEND cohorts and all the rest of it, and there's no way to help these children or families. So I think I think Ofsted is absolutely a massive lever. There was a really good um, piece of work by States of Mind, which was a, a participatory action research um, a piece of research that was done with um, uh, secondary school students in London who basically 
um, set out to uh, research what was the biggest driver of declining mental health and well-being in the education system. And they thought about their school and they thought about what that was and they identified Ofsted as the biggest driver and that the children feel it, the staff feel it, the whole school ecosystem feeds off this Ofsted mm. window cycle. Um, and it was a, it was a brilliant, brilliant piece of research, actually. So if anyone wants to look at it, I know Scott's got a question, but I'm going to butt in because it uh, links into that. Uh, you're saying. Sorry, Scott. Sorry, Scott's Scott. on the roll, and I now apologize. you're just like buttoning in, but whatever. But it is, yeah. <laughs> but it was just in that terms of the. It's almost like the system is when the system doesn't work. The first person to blame is the child. Yeah. Or, or actually, or maybe even the parent. Yeah. That actually, it's it's. And so it's it seems like really odd that there's this machine that says, "Oh well, you're, why won't you play nicely with us? We've set ourselves up, and and this we we're doing it to the approved standards, and we've got a good rating. But you you're not playing nice, yeah. So there must be something wrong with you. There's no. There's, is there any? I mean, that's maybe. I, I don't want to mischaracterize individual members of staff because I don't think that's fair. I think there, there's like everything. There's bloody good and bad, and lot, most people in between. But is there any sort of self-reflection in in the, within the system to say, oh, maybe it does, not you? So that's what's really exciting. And I think attendance is this lens through which everybody is sort of waking up. Um, and that's why I'm really glad that the national conversation is happening, however acute it might be. Um, uh, but, but so when we fell out of education and became school refusers and a child tier three and a half cams aged nine um we were really battered and bruised and i came out really cross and angry and writing complaints and trying to get an ehcp that was fit for purpose and having to wade through treacle and 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 i i i grew up as i said i went to a school that was pretty damn harsh and so I was already, I suppose, didn't have a very favourable impression of, of school, actually. Um, and so to come out of it um, really battered, I couldn't see any good. What I do now and what is brilliant, and the book has legitimised this. So this is what's so lovely, is that I've now got, I have conversations with leaders every day saying, thank you for writing this book. Thank you for saying what you're saying. And you're really um, giving me pause for thought. I'm like, if there's nothing else that we do, it's just that pause for thought, because that's what's needed. I think education, the sector broadly knows that they've almost been sold a, a bit of a lie. It's so beguiling, isn't it? That if we just sort out behaviour, everything with education will be fine. <laughs> and it's it's such a it's such a... A, it's a huge capacity and resource drain, but it isn't a silver bullet. Um, and the methods with with which behaviour has been tackled arguably are, I'll say it, harmful. You know, they are um, punishing the most vulnerable, segregating the most disadvantaged, uh, pathologising kids in a way that I don't think we've ever experienced um, and and it's yeah, it's just it's just not helping anybody. But if I come back to my adult professional self, there's a part of me that can see that 
those that are of that belief are showing up every day in the belief that they're doing the right thing. And so in order to remain in flow um, and in order to sort of name elephants in the room a little bit, because I think what we see is the shield of shame in action so often in that defense, dismiss, deny, rage at the center of the shield of shame. I love Kim Golding. You can see that in, in politics. You can see that in education. You can see that in any discussion around children and families and the professionals that are trying to support them. What I am now seeing more of is I'm meeting heads who I was so nervous of speaking to or classroom teachers or support professionals or clinicians or whoever it is. I was so nervous speaking to these people. And it is absolutely humbling to meet anybody who has decided to give their life in service to making things better for children and families. It's an incredibly, it's an incredible thing. I couldn't even say that out loud in 2014. I was so mm-hmm. failed and broken. And so what I'm realizing is that that sort of phrase, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, it takes a very brave person to kind of go, I thought I was doing the right thing, but I've realized I, it wasn't. What I was delivering actually made things worse for you, and I'm sorry. That's that's such a healing conversation in and of itself. But more and more people are saying that to me. And I think this is where innovation happens because there are professionals who know. And I I kind of think about that split from your authentic self as a human being, that you've got to deliver this behavior policy. You've got to teach in this way that Mm. doesn't fit your ethics or your values or whatever and and so so yeah so i think so i think there is an openness i think covid absolutely legitimized it had we had we not had covid would the deep reflective practice that is going on right now be happening probably but because the persistent absence data has doubled so we're now at two million for this autumn and the data that's re- that everybody is really concerned about isn't that 10 percent percentage it's the children missing 50 percent or 90 percent or more so it's kids like mine who were fully absent but those numbers have exploded and that's the data that so a lot of the headline data in the management is about getting those who are at the 10 percent 12 percent 15 percent threshold back into school but we're still not meeting the need of the explosion of kids who are now unable to access education at all um and that's it's terrifying it is overwhelming but it's also an invitation and that's where i just think you know our, our kids are absolutely showing us in increasing numbers and 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 many professionals are waking up going do you know what i thought we were doing the right thing but we need to do things differently well yeah thank you i don't need to i don't need a cue i was willing to come in there thank you very much Court. let's see your question now scott <laughs> well I, I again i want to go back now. to basics because i'm I, I i heard it today actually i was listening to radio two when i was driving the car um and the presenter was talking about his inability to kind of process maths stuff. He played uh, he played a thing about uh, Carol, Carol Vorderman did a couple of years ago where she uh, brought together the times tables. Why are you yawning, Al? 
Did I yawn when you were talking? No, I did not. So please don't yawn when I'm talking. Otherwise, we'll have words after this. But anyway, Carol Vorderman <laughs> recorded um, popular pop songs, shall we say, with times tables to kind of make, you know, make it easier for people to remember them. And I'm just going back to my time in school. And, you know, I, I, I would be classed as your normal, and I'll put my fingers in there when I say that, a normal student who genuinely really struggled with maths. My mum went into school. I remember that day as well because I said, I just can't do maths, mum. I just can't do it. It's like not my subject. I just can't do it. But they have all this pressure. And bear in mind, this was like 1980, whatever, I don't know, early 80s, should we say? Maybe mid-80s. Let's say mid-80s, just for the sake of an argument. Um, and <laughs> Shut up. Um, and she was met with this kind of, huh? What do you mean he struggles maths? Um, and at, at that time, uh, the classes were called remedial classes. That's what they were called. I, I just thought about that there while we while we we've been talking because I was kind of configuring the question in my head. So my mum went into school and asked if I could be involved in the remedial classes to to bring me up to speed with my maths and you know help me and blah blah. And she was told to downright no because I didn't fit the model that required the remedial sessions. Um, and then I'm listening to things like today, a man of similar age to me, I would imagine, maybe, you know, a little bit younger, but how much of the this kind of education system, and when I say that, I was, I was tempted to add in the word draconian there, because the education system has been around for years, and it has never really adjusted. It's, all, it's still all about sitting in a classroom at a desk and performing these tasks, and you know, with a pencil or a bit of paper or a pen or whatever, how much of that influences the kind of, you know, I, I, I'm struggling to put the question together because I'm just thinking of all the people that I know who may be neurodiverse and, you know, not necessarily in the adoption and fostering sector, in normal sectors who really struggle with yeah. this kind of sit down at a desk, pay attention to what's on the, 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 the board at the front and just write down the answers. Yeah, I mean, arguably, it was never fit for purpose, right? So um, there's an article I can share with you, which is about the um, Peter Gray, one of the contributors to the book, has done a big, long piece about the history of education around um, the agricultural revolution and um, agriculturalism and then the industrial revolution, all the rest of it. Things like, um, I can't remember what it was called, but um, uh, attention... Uh, deficit uh, disorders, these pathologies didn't appear until three years after the Education Act. So when children were, I mean, let's not mince about, you know, climbing up a chimney wasn't any quality of life. But, you know, we weren't pathologizing children for for not sit, for, for, for sitting still. Yeah. And so there's something very basic there and fundamental about children's need to move. And you mm. see this in early years all the time, but also the benefits for mental health and coordination and articulation and hearing processing and all the rest of it. I think one of the things that makes my heart think is when I see educators get really excited over things like cognitive loading and optimizing um, encoding of information. And even, you know, some of the most lovely educators will sort of really get their rocks off on sort of thinking about how to maximize memory input for children who are six. Mm -hmm. And there's and it's kind of like, how did we get here? 
how do we get to this thing that we've got this curriculum that everybody, every single child needs to swallow and pass it to certain standards and they're not allowed to get up, ask any questions or, or learn at their own pace that might be right for them. How do we get here that actually the whole science of education development has been around optimising that rather than nurturing our children in the in 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 the most child friendly developmentally appropriate way and it it, it really it, it kind of melts my brain because i'm like okay so you're all and then we have conversations about self-regulation and you know what's the next sort of shiny thing that we need to bring on board that sounds a bit softer but it's still about putting it on the children's shoulders in order for them to still be calm enough to remain at the desk for a bit longer to do that learning for a bit mm -hmm. longer. And it, it just, I think we've all experienced as parents, just the, the wonder and curiosity and vitality, but also agency that small children have. They're unafraid to explore the room unless, yeah. unless you know, they are, um, you know, come from very difficult circumstances and then there is, you know, a reticence, a hesitance, or maybe an over-zealousness to sort yeah. of, I'm not looking at this room, I'll go down the road. Yeah, yeah. And I'll look at the stranger's room down there because that'll be fun. <laughs> um, so there's, uh, you know, but nevertheless, there is um, a natural curiosity and engagement that with the right circumstances and the right environment, the right caregivers, it's a beautiful thing. And, and, and we all watch it go and I don't know when I lost it myself I, I can't really say but I, I do remember sort of being schooled for um verbal reasoning I remember doing verbal reasoning when I was 10 and I hated it um and those aptitude scoringy things I hated all that um and and it does just um uh feed in a um loathing of learning it's not it's not an enjoyable mm. thing so i I think part of the conversation that Square Peg enjoys having is to remind everyone as to the purpose and who's it for and why are we doing it. Mm. Um, and that does pull on um, lots of things. You know, are we doing it to prepare children? You know, a lot of it is about preparation for adulthood. If you've got a kid on an EHCP, that's, that conversation starts when they're nine and a half. And my son was in such deep shutdown then that he was like, why are you asking me about this? When I... I'm, when I was asked when I was nine what I wanted to be, it was like, mm, I don't know. I just kind of quite like smelly stickers and stationery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I don't know. And so you this, probably you still know, do. I love stationery. <laughs> and if you give me a really good scratch and sniff sticker, I'll be happy for hours. <laughs> Simply. Uh, yeah. But it's interesting that because I think that we – I see that amongst my children. I see that, and and also I see that I see that in myself. That mm. I was by the time I was fifteen, I was bored out of my school by a, by the process yep. of education. I needed to go Absolutely. and do something. My brother was the same. My brother disengaged younger, but then went back and has taught himself structural mechanics out of a book. In because it, when he's in his forties, because he needs it, it means sense to him. And there's so many children and young people. And I was reminded of that story in the Scott. I don't, I don't think you'll mind me saying the Scott about Jacob, in where he he explained kind of his inner workings of when he was. I was at a school like a parents' evening, and he was sitting, sort of fidgeting, twiggling, and and the teacher had said, "Will you sit? Will you know sit still while I'm talking to you and listen to me?" And he said, "Well, you you get the choice. You can either I can either listen to you." Or I can yeah. sit still. You don't oh, get yeah. both. 
which is just so, I mean, it's just if we'd only known that at three or four or five years earlier, you know, you think how many children who just can't articulate their inner world and are just then presumed to be misbehaving, not engaging, a million other things that, you know, the people on the internet want to throw around that that nasty end of ed education Twitter. Yeah, I think I think opinions are rife, aren't they, about children and parents. And I've been thinking about just the sort of amount of hot air that sort of goes around um, and perpetuated narratives. And there's so much to unpick about the attitudes towards the working class, towards the squeeze middle, towards, you know, if you're a functioning addict and you've got a toddler and you are trying your best in insecure housing or a refuge to get your your um, older kid to school, um, but you're not able to access support because you don't meet the criteria or the commissioning isn't there or whatever, you're, you're a hair's breadth from 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 your from um your children being removed and life being um incredibly um yeah never the same again yeah. so so i th- i think the the flex in the system to come alongside families and meet them where they're at the conversations around families is is such a deficit model and parents hear it all the time it's poor parenting it's poor parenting it's no wonder that none of them trust themselves you know that they, they, they don't have confidence in what they do, um, and yet when you look at, you know, the um, resources that could be there, that are, you know, one of the phrases that somebody said to me is, a child-friendly school should be a it is a neurodiverse friendly school. It's the same thing, mm. and we split other kids into cohorts you know don't we and we kind of think and the one thing I'm really anxious about is I'm hearing an EBSA pathway in some schools versus a um, fines and prosecutions pathway I'm like who's deciding whether or not it's an emotionally based school avoidance pathway in which case you get the compassion focus slightly kind access to maybe some AP or whatever it is farm school for a few weeks who decides on that and again it's this roll of the dice between the child that ends up in the PRU or youth justice versus the child that has a proactive youth worker who sort of holds them together and gets a referral to, you know, a good support system. And it really is the role of a dice over and over again. And yet if we treated children appropriately and kindly and in a way that um, met needs broadly because all children have needs some of them are acute some of them are required some of them are lifelong some of them ebb and flow needs are human and yet the education system and in fact politicians seem stunned that children and families have needs Mm. so it's kind of like the planning around that yeah and the other the other one that nobody really sort of talks about is that children grow up into adults it's like yeah, didn't didn't see that coming. Um, really? So the cliff cliff face with services. Who knew? <laughs> I know. <laughs> so um, so yeah, I, I I think there's so much, but I do think attendance is this lens through which you can see all of the vulnerability and frailty of family life. You can see all of the failures yeah. in policies and services. You can see all of the stretched uh, professionals that are just at their wits' end. And you can see a lot of good intentions going wrong. Yeah. And that, in a nutshell, is why we've got to start the conversation from a place of working with 
bringing it, bringing it back to and believing that we're not, you know, the hope that we can alter intergenerational cycles of disengagement and withdrawal. But we're not going to do that if we're threatening and blaming families all the time for not being good enough or that their children aren't trying hard enough to attend school or remain in education or sit still in the classroom or not be defiant. So I like to, I choose hope. Well, I think we all do that in some way, shape or form, even though sometimes it's kind of uh, almost like banging your head on a brick wall. I think that's a lovely place to kind of really bring this to an end tonight. And we haven't talked about SATs. We haven't talked about exams. We haven't talked about the pressures of all that. We also haven't talked about kind of school notice boards with attendance figures and you know you could win a bike for this and you could mm-hmm. win a bike for that and it's interesting because recent very recently um i'm not going to mention any names and i'm trying i'm going to try and give away as little as possible but the school that my oldest children went to actually um someone who i know who al and i both know actually they have a child at the same very same school which is quite freaky considering our lifestyles um and it's still the bloody same and we're talking 10 years on, they've still got that notice board up with the, you know, oh, this person has 100% attendance, so therefore they will win a bike or something this year. So it's it's such a bloody, I don't know, it just seems just a a nightmare, I guess, for, for just generally for parents. And it's just not something that is kind of, I want to say the word conventional because it's. I, I actually believe that. I, I don't think it's a conventional thing to assume that every child is going to have 100% attendance with, you know, if you think about some of our children who need to go to therapy, who need to go to, to play therapy, who need to go to, you know, maybe CAMS meetings or this or that or the next thing. So to then say, well, actually, you're not good enough to win the bike. It's just mm-hmm. wrong. It's wrong. So it doesn't encourage anything. However, let's not go there because... Ellie, love you as I do. I think we could be here for another hour and a half, which is fabulous, <laughs> which is fabulous. And I yes, was just going to say, yes. apparently you've got a book because you only mentioned it like maybe 12 times. I don't know. through that. <laughs> I, uh, so I've become better at mentioning it because I spent about three months not talking about it at all. Like, well, oh, I've got what we'll do is um, I'll get my admin, Al, to put it in the show notes about how they can access the book. Because that I would think be if, if you've got a book, I, I've got a copy. Oh, did you? Well, I didn't. I went to the opening. Do you remember? And I had a badge that said podcaster on it. Oh, was that that podcaster? Was that the one that you and, just said, yeah, I'll come? And you didn't say to me, yeah, Scott, do you want to come to this? Yeah, that was the one where we felt we did fall out yeah, about that, that one. Yeah, because it was, it was, we did, yeah. you had train strikes though. It was a real mission to get there. So I don't, don't need beat train. yourself I, up. I, I get on a plane to come to I London. Was, so. I was very brave. Yeah, very brave. <laughs> <laughs> the canopies yeah. and fizzy wine. Ellie, yeah, thank you lovely. so much for um, having the chat with us tonight. Yeah. And I know it's very late. Well, it is very late. I know that people might listen to this podcast at various times, but it's now half past nine in the evening. So to give up this mm-hmm. amount of time for us is just amazing. So thank you so oh, much. My- thank you so much. George, you're such heroes for asking me. Thank you. No, absolutely. You're you're a very welcome <laughs> back guest um, at any time. Um, you come back You come Definitely. back a third time, you get a gold badge and everything, you know, and you still have to pay yeah. for it, but you get the gold badge. <laughs> <laughs> It's only a paper. It's not. It's not a proper gold badge. Just so we're clear. (laughs) I'd love anything. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming in.
uh, tonight and we do genuinely appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you.